Welcome to Double Truck Stories, the home to some of the best features, investigations, and character portraits from across ESPN. I'm Mike Philbrick, your host for the Double Truck Stories podcast. Patrick Ewing has left his mark on many places, his birthplace of Jamaica, his high school in Cambridge, Massachusetts, and the New York Knicks. But there is one place where all seven feet of Ewing has stood the tallest, and that's Georgetown University. This season, Ewing will put that legacy on the line as he returns to lead the Hoyas in his first head coaching position ever. To know where this newly minted head coach is going, you really need to know where he's been. No, not just all the NBA honors or college honors, but where he was before. The playgrounds of Cambridge, where as an immigrant from Jamaica, he humbled himself with relentless preparation and route to learning the game. Or the windowless coaches' rooms of the NBA, where he humbled himself for 15 years with relentless tape sessions and scouting reports and route to learning how to better teach the game. All these quiet struggles have made him ready for the moment because Patrick Ewing isn't just coming to coach Georgetown. Patrick Ewing is coming home. Stick around after the story for my conversation with Ian O'Connor about how Patrick Ewing is ready to bring the next chapter of Hoya Paranoia to the world of college basketball. Now we present Patrick Ewing Has the Floor by Ian O'Connor. Patrick Ewing Has the Floor by Ian O'Connor At Georgetown, you always had to go through John Thompson Jr. to get to Patrick Ewing, and more than three decades later, nothing much has changed. You need to enter the new campus facility named after Thompson. You need to pass the bronze statue of the bespectacled coach whose likeness stands with arms folded and a towel dangling from his shoulder while he stares through someone in the distance. To see Ewing, you need to go four floors up in the Thompson Center, where the elevator opens wide to an outsized picture of Ewing in his number 33 jersey and omnipresent gray t-shirt, his eight-foot wingspan stretching from wall to wall. At 55, roaming the hallways above the practice court while checking his cell messages, Ewing looks every bit the towering presence he was during those years in the 1980s when he made the Big East the Big East. If you spend a few decades around basketball players, you know that standing beside seven-footers like Ewing as an average-sized man can be an interesting experience. Some appear to be a mere six-foot-eight. Ewing? He always appeared to be seven-foot-four. He is Georgetown's head coach now. In other words, he has Thompson's job in Thompson's building, where Thompson still keeps an office. The man who first called Ewing and told him he needed to pursue this opening? John Thompson Jr., right after his son, John Thompson III, was fired by the very school his old man put on the basketball map. It was an awkward series of events, but it made sense too, since Big John has always looked after Bigger Patrick. Thompson started protecting Ewing in 1981 when the center from Cambridge, Massachusetts ended the mother of all high school recruiting wars in an announcement at a Boston restaurant owned by Thompson's former Celtics teammate, Satch Sanders. The coach had made quite an impression in his visit with the Ewing family. He spoke extremely well. He carried himself with class, Ewing recalls. And as a young black man, he was somebody I could be like. The recruit was most struck by Thompson's way with words. I was mesmerized. Ewing wanted Thompson to keep doing the talking for him at Georgetown, where, 
Hoya Paranoia was born of the restricted access to the phenom. A lot of times, Ewing recalls, he took the hit, especially for me if I didn't speak. I didn't like speaking to the media. Growing up in Boston, I learned from a young age that the media builds you up and at a certain point, they start chopping you down. But all these years later, Thompson won't be able to protect Ewing from anything. Big John remains a father confessor to Ewing, and yet he will not be making halftime speeches or diagramming plays on the board. This is Ewing's program now. He has never been a head coach on any level, and he will rise or fall on his own. Enough people out there believe he will fall, and that there must be a good reason nobody in the NBA offered him a head coaching job despite his Hall of Fame playing career and the better part of 15 years as an NBA assistant. And there are plenty of legitimate questions to ask about this monumental gamble Ewing is taking. Can he adjust to college basketball after being away from it for more than 30 years? Can he navigate the sport's overwhelmingly corrupt feeder system and out-recruit opposing coaches who have far more experience delivering the pitch? Does he have the requisite charisma to persuade some of the nation's top high school players to sign with Georgetown? The college basketball lifestyle is awful, says Jeff Van Gundy, one of Ewing's coaches with the New York Knicks. The job in the NBA is 90% coaching, 10% everything else. The job in college is 30% basketball, 70% everything else. If the doubters believe that 70% will ultimately doom Ewing, his backstory suggests he might just find a way to return the Hoyas to national prominence. Though it isn't a story he told in his 15 years in New York, where he guarded his inner thoughts as fiercely as he guarded the paint, the Jamaican-born Ewing defines himself as an immigrant who made good against the longest of odds. When he moved to the U.S. at age 12, the idea that Ewing would someday become the face of one of the nation's leading academic institutions wasn't within 10 country miles of possibility. He made it happen anyway. So Ewing believes he will weather his new career challenges the way he weathered his stormy transition to a new world, shaped by the cancer of racism to become what he became. I'm what America is all about, Ewing says. He means the good and the bad. Patrick Ewing is a problem solver. To understand where he might go with this attempted Georgetown reconstruction, you have to understand where he's been, what he's seen, and what he's conquered. Ewing had dreams of becoming the next Pele when he moved to America in the mid-1970s, just as Pele started turning the New York Cosmos into an iconic disco-era brand. Ewing had been a soccer and cricket player in Jamaica, but when he arrived in the Cambridge office of Steve Jenkins, junior high basketball coach, the dreamer was little more than a lost soul in a strange land. Classmates mocked his size and Jamaican patois. A friend named Richard Burton had introduced Patrick to basketball, and the older playground players laughed at his awkward attempts to execute even the most fundamental moves. Burton mentioned Ewing to Jenkins, a bearded white man raised in the predominantly black Boston neighborhood of Roxbury. The coach figured Patrick could learn the game while playing for his team at the Achievement School, an alternative program that helped young immigrants with their English. The kid asked Jenkins nearly every day if he could stay after practice and work on passing, boxing out, turnaround jumpers, you name it. The origin of his work ethic was easy to trace. Patrick's mother, Dorothy, was the first of the Ewings to leave Kingston, Jamaica for Massachusetts. She was what her son called a maid-slash-nanny who ended up doing double shifts in the kitchen at Massachusetts General Hospital. Carl Sr., a mechanic in Jamaica, 
followed his wife to Cambridge, where he would work as a laborer. Soon, all seven Ewing children, five girls, two boys, left for the U.S., and the family settled in a five-room home inside a three-decker near the Charles River. Patrick counted five Ewings in one bedroom. Visitors to the home recalled seeing a bedsheet used as a makeshift bedroom door. Dorothy used to tell people that her family was poor but never wanted for anything, and she made it clear she didn't much care about Patrick's gift for playing ball, insisting that he spend his summers focused on the Upward Bound program at Wellesley College. On Ewing's way into high school, Jenkins suggested he might want to take general math instead of algebra to ease the transition. Ewing angrily dismissed the idea and did just fine with Algebra 1. He grew to 6'9 as a freshman, 6'11 as a sophomore, and he was a four-year varsity player at Cambridge Ringe in Latin, first for Tim Mahoney and then for Mike Jarvis, who met Ewing shortly after he arrived in the country. Jenkins made the introduction and asked the future head coach at St. John's to help refine Patrick's skills. This was during the turbulent time of forced busing in Boston to desegregate the city's schools. Ringe was a team of African-American students with an African-American head coach traveling to play in largely white suburbs. Many who lived in these suburbs, Jarvis says, were folks who had left Boston. They were part of the white flight. Maybe it was too black for them in Boston, and it was very racist at the time. We had the number one player and the number one team. We were the hunted. Everybody wanted to beat us, and nobody could. In his early days in Cambridge, Ewing says, he needed to ask a friend what the N-word meant. He knew all too well by his high school days. Jenkins recalled hearing a fan and an opponent direct the word at Patrick, then a freshman, during a game in Brockton, hometown of Rocky Marciano and Marvin Hagler, and advising Patrick not to punch back. I think they were talking to the wrong guy, Jenkins said. All Patrick learned to say was, look at the scoreboard. Ringe once had its bus tires slashed and windows broken and two players sent to the hospital to treat cuts caused by a thrown brick and shattered glass. The Warriors were never deterred by the ignorance and hate. They routinely shredded their opponents and major college coaches from all over assembled at their games. In a February 1981 news conference attended by some 150 reporters, Ewing, dressed in a three-piece suit, announced he was picking Georgetown. Today, he says UCLA was his runner-up. But before he'd play for Thompson, Ewing had to play before an angry standing-room-only crowd in his final high school game for the state title against Boston College High, which sent many of its students to Boston College. Some of the Boston College High fans verbally vented over his college choice. Ewing can't read, they chanted. The hostility intensified after Jarvis's letter to all schools recruiting him, outlining Ewing's need for academic support, was made public. Jarvis informed the schools that Ewing needed daily tutoring, untimed testing, permission to use a tape recorder in class, and a program to develop and monitor his basic skills, all within NCAA guidelines. During Ewing's final high school game, Jenkins recalled, Patrick leaned over to me and told me, You know, Mr. Jenkins, they may think I can't read, but I sure can count the money they'll pay to see me play in the NBA. Ewing had nothing left to prove at Ringe, yet he remembered that in his first high school game as a freshman, he'd fouled out and scored one point against Boston College High. He told his mother before the rematch three years later that he wanted to score 40 points as payback. He ended up scoring 41, 30 on dunks in a victory that gave him a third straight state title and 77 victories in 78 games.
says Jerry Corcoran, the 6'6 opponent assigned to guard him. The young kid I played against in high school was the same competitor who never changed at Georgetown or with the Knicks. Pat played one way. It was ferocious and to make a point. The 2017 fall semester is about to start at Georgetown, and Ewing was rewinding his memories of the coach who once kept the Hoyas off the court in Providence until one of the many racist signs they'd see in Big East gyms was taken down. Together they advanced to three national title games, winning one, while Ewing changed the sport defensively the way Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, then Lou Alcindor, changed it offensively at UCLA in the 1960s. But as much as anything, Ewing's Hoyas were symbols of pride for millions of African Americans who wore their jerseys, jackets, and caps from coast to coast. A lot of people in Cambridge thought this was a predominantly black school, Ewing says, but it's a predominantly white school. I knew we had a huge African American following, especially with older folks, but the media hated us. Everything that was written about us back then was so negative. They didn't accept us, the way that we played, the way we carried ourselves. We didn't open ourselves up to the media. You didn't smile, you were different, but we gave a lot of hope to black people and that made me feel good. Ewing graduated from Georgetown, but never really left. He stayed in constant touch with Thompson. He returned for summertime workouts on campus with the centers who followed him, Dikembe Mutombo and Alonzo Mourning. He sent two of his children to Georgetown, and with his agent, David Falk, he donated $3.3 million to the building of the John R. Thompson Jr. Intercollegiate Athletic Center. So when John Thompson III was fired in March after 13 seasons, after the program slowly faded from national contention following his one Final Four run in 2007, Ewing felt like he'd been fired. Patrick's son, Patrick Jr., was on Thompson's staff. Big John reached out to Ewing and told him to go for the job anyway. It should be one of us, the patriarch told the protege. Ewing needed time to think. He talked to Van Gundy and his boss with the Charlotte Hornets, Steve Clifford. He called his old rival, Chris Mullen, who took a similar plunge at St. John's, and former NBA star Dan Marley, now coaching at Grand Canyon University. Ultimately, he called the Georgetown president, John DeJoya, and informed him he wanted to come home, even if the school's nepotism policy wouldn't allow Patrick Jr. to stay on staff. He met with DeJoya at the D.C. law office of Paul Tagliabue, former NFL commissioner and a former Georgetown center who is now the vice chair of Georgetown's board of directors. Ewing thought he did well in the interview, yet didn't feel a positive vibe from the university president. Ewing told Thompson, I don't think I'm going to get it. He was telling Clifford the same thing as the Hornets boarded a bus for practice when his phone rang. Georgetown athletic director Lee Reed was on the line to make Ewing an offer. Don't mess with me, the candidate told the AD. No, Reed said, you got the job. When Ewing met again with DeJoya, he told the president, Damn, Jack, you've got a hell of a poker face. Ewing says Georgetown is the only college he would have agreed to work for, and those close to him still find it hard to believe such an accomplished athlete willing to spend more than 13 seasons breaking down film and writing scouting reports never got an NBA shot. Patrick had worked harder and longer than any top 50 all-time NBA player ever worked at that position, Van Gundy says, with more than a trace of bitterness. And it's not even close. The Knicks could have at least interviewed arguably their all-time greatest player, but a bygone dinner date Ewing had with their owner, James Dolan, never resulted in a coaching offer from Dolan's basketball executives. 
Ewing also knew that the most recent of those executives, Phil Jackson, would never hire him after he told a New York columnist in 1996 that he wanted Van Gundy to remain his coach. I was the one who squashed the Knicks hiring Phil, he says. Sacramento came close to hiring Ewing last year before the Kings went with Dave Yeager, who had the head coaching experience, three playoff appearances, and a 147-99 and record with the Memphis Grizzlies that Ewing did not. Asked why he believes the NBA never called his number, Ewing says, I don't know, pigeonholed, big man can't coach, big man can't think. Executives from the Knicks and Kings declined requests for comment. Van Gundy calls it size bias. Even though Ewing spent much of his career directing traffic from the center position and thinking like a point guard, he couldn't break through. Too many basketball executives seem to believe a small man can coach a big easier than a big man can coach a small. Perceived personality was another apparent issue. Ewing's friends wonder whether his game-night demeanor painted a one-dimensional portrait of him that ultimately hurt his case. People are often surprised at how charming Ewing can be. Larry Bird wasn't a fan from a distance, but after playing with Ewing on the 1992 Olympic Dream Team, he told columnist Jackie McMullen that Patrick was probably the nicest guy I've ever met. Mullen says he doesn't think he exchanged one word with Ewing during their four years in the Big East, but that the two became close friends after spending time together in Barcelona. Patrick's funny, smart, just a great guy, Mullen says. In later NBA job interviews, Ewing grew tired of executives telling him he was more personable than they'd expected. Don't look at my facial expression on the court, he says, as the same person off the court. The people at Georgetown knew better. The Hoyas are coming off back-to-back losing seasons and have been competing at an entirely different level from the Kentuckys and Dukes. I don't think it's a rebuild, Ewing maintains. I don't want to get it back to the level that it was. It's my goal to try to be consistent, get to the NCAA, and hopefully one day win a couple of titles. I want to be relevant, and it starts with recruiting. Ewing landed four-star forwards Josh LeBlanc from Louisiana and Jamorco Pickett from Washington, D.C., the one market above all he needs to establish as a consistent talent pipeline. He also won over a high-flying point guard from Virginia named Mac McClung, who originally committed to Rutgers before reopening his recruitment and rejecting a flood of new offers in favor of Georgetown. McClung said in a statement that Ewing showed him videos of how he wants him to play at an NBA pace. McClung's father, Marcus, said the videos were of Charlotte's Kimball Walker and that during his campus visit, John Thompson Jr. told him how excited he was when my recruitment reopened and how I played like a Hoya. Marcus McClung says he was starstruck to meet Thompson and that his son was impressed with Ewing's vision for developing him into a potential pro. No promises were made, Marcus McClung says, but if anybody knows what it takes to get to the next level, it's Patrick Ewing. Teenagers might not be the best audience for an NBA great who retired right after they were born, but Ewing's advocates believe he has the assets to bridge the gap. He's one of my closest friends, Clifford says, and I think he has a personality that's absolutely made for recruiting. He gets along with anybody, and he's witty. If you combine that with his knowledge, and if you're a serious young player who wants to have a good chance to learn what playing at the next level is about, he has to be a great option as your head coach. Clifford cited not only the work Ewing did with fellow bigs, Yao Ming, Dwight Howard, and Al Jefferson, but with Tracy McGrady and Walker, too. Clifford said Charlotte once had a young player who showed his frustration every time he was benched. 
Ewing sat with the player in the head coach's presence and reminded him that his teammates had never showed their frustration to the crowd and the cameras whenever he screwed up. But every time Steve takes you out of the game, Ewing told the player, you look like you should still be in there and you shouldn't. That was the end of the meeting, Clifford says. On one midseason night in a wintry city, playing the second half of a back-to-back, Van Gundy once had trouble in a timeout, persuading McGrady, one of his favorites, to play as hard as he always did in the playoffs. Van Gundy tried every motivational cell in the coaching manual, and then the huddle broke, and Patrick walked up to Tracy and just said, I don't know about all that, but you gotta start effing playing, Van Gundy recalls. Patrick has a way of cutting out all the excuses. Ewing's own college story was a compelling one. His mother died of a massive heart attack in the middle of his Georgetown career, and he was so devastated he thought about leaving school for keeps. He stayed because he'd promised her he'd complete his education. Once demeaned over his academic shortcomings in his second country, Ewing earned a degree in fine arts from the same elite university that just gave him a rare six-year contract to restore its basketball glory. Now he promises an up-tempo style of offense and the same work ethic as a coach that left him, in his words, encased in ice after nearly every NBA game he played. Ewing says he'll represent a big gumbo of all those who taught him the game, from Steve Jenkins to Steve Clifford. Ewing also told some of his mentors that he wants to develop into a good, strong branch on their coaching trees. Dude, Van Gundy has told him, you're the tree and we're the branches. The most accomplished coach Ewing ever played for, Pat Riley, says his former franchise player will command the attention and respect of teenage blue chippers by telling a story that's truthful. The Miami Heat president loved Ewing's grinder mentality when they were together in New York and now envisions Patrick imposing his competitive will on the Hoyas. Patrick, Riley says, is as much of a man as everyone is going to meet. I know if I was a high school player and I was really good, I'd want to go with somebody who was not going to kiss my ass, who coached the hell out of me and made me better. I guarantee I'd want to play for Patrick Ewing. Excellent, excellent story. I'm now joined in studio by the writer Ian O'Connor. Ian, welcome. Mike, good to be with you. Thank you. Um, as I read the story, uh, how I really got the uh, I knew he struggled to Patrick Ewing struggled to learn the game, but then once he sort of mastered the game on many levels, then he toiled as an assistant for as long as he did. Do you feel does did you get the sense that Patrick Ewing felt that he he had earned a shot to coach mm-hmm. an NBA team and he didn't get one? Right. Do you think he felt that way? Oh yeah, absolutely, Mike. I think. He felt he should have been a head coach years ago. Frankly, he's one of the 50 greatest NBA players of all time. He had been an assistant coach, well, ultimately for the better part of 13, 14 years in the NBA, had played for and worked under Hall of Fame coaches and really good coaches who who might someday be borderline Hall of Fame coaches throughout his entire career. And so here's a guy who, and if you watch Patrick play with the Knicks in New York, even though he was a center and one of the best centers of all time, he really directed traffic. He almost thought the game and saw the game like a point guard. Right. And so Jeff Van Gundy uh, spoke about in the piece a size bias in the NBA, <laughs> right? Because we most coaches we think of point guards and quarterbacks and guys who are six right. foot one and 
You think of a seven-one guy or a seven-foot guy, uh, he's not really out there directing traffic. But I, I was there courtside for a lot of Patrick's career, and he did. He really thought the game almost like a, a quarterback. And so here's the problem with, with, with Patrick and what he ran into is perception of personality. Mm-hmm. And he says this himself. When I was on the court, I was all business. I had that mask of ferocity. And he, and he felt that a lot of people couldn't get past that. Right. And don't mistake my presence on the court for who I am as a human being. And it wasn't until a lot of executives sat down with Patrick where they found out he could be a charming guy. He's funny, witty. And they'd say to him, boy, you have more personality than I thought. And he got tired of hearing that. But Sacramento came close to hiring him. But ultimately, in the NBA, he never really was right on the doorstep of being hired as a head coach. Now, as he goes to the college game, something he's been away from for a while, as we know, an enormous part of your success at college is recruiting. Mm -hmm. And Georgetown is not – the Hoya paranoia has not been around for a while. And – there are now a generation of prep players out there that are coming up through the pipeline that really outside of doing a little bit of their own homework would never really knew what the significance of, you know, Georgetown basketball was sort of like the problem that Notre Dame football had for a while where there was a whole generation of kids coming through the prep pipeline that didn't know what it meant. like didn't know what the fighting Irish pride of the Irish, they didn't know what any of that meant. And that posed a challenge. Is that something that you got the feel that maybe is really hard for him to overcome or is it something that that maybe just, you know, just a little bit of a little Google search and these guys are all on board? It's going to be something for him to overcome for for sure. And he's aware of that. But, you know, things like an ESPN 30 for 30 on on the Big East and Patrick Ewing being at the center of that uh, to some degree anyway is helpful. And so I know uh, Mac McClung, he's a guard from Virginia who originally committed to Rutgers, a high-flying six six foot six foot one guard that Patrick really wanted initially lost to Rutgers but then the kid decommitted and ultimately signed with Rutgers his father was telling me a story about obviously he was blown away when Patrick called his cell phone wow Patrick Ewing well he's my age right 52 53 years old but he had to explain to his son do you realize how titanic a figure Patrick was in college basketball of course his son didn't didn't know that but they sat down and they watched some uh might have been the thirty for thirty on, uh, mm-hmm. on the Big East uh, that ESPN had, and and some other things. To he educated his son, sure. But so Patrick has the parents and the grandparents, mm-hmm. and so that that's the bridge into the kid. And he thinks that working the parents and the grandparents in some cases will allow him to establish himself, his presence in the game, what he meant to the game, and therefore make the sell to the player and make that connection. So we'll see if that works or not. But you're right. There is a, a gap there. There's a generation gap that he's going to have to find a way to bridge that divide. Now, in your in your piece, uh, Patrick mentions how blown away he was by the way that John Thompson was able to speak to him. Mm-hmm. Now, is John how involved is John Thompson now? Is he like basically sort of we have, you know, you have – Social media coaches and interview coaches now out there now. Do you have somebody? Does John Thompson like? Okay, here's what you say. And is he in touch enough to even know what to say? I think so. And and John has an office in the building. The building, the Thompson Center, named after him. That Patrick has his office in. And there's the statue when you walk in that building. That's right there of John Thompson. You can't get to Patrick Ewing. And it's funny because I I mentioned this in the piece. Even if you tried to interview Patrick as a player at Georgetown, you always had to go through John Thompson. And generally, it was very hard to do that. He put up a stone wall and. 
So I think John Thompson understands the game. He's, and here's the thing that's funny. A lot of people say, well, if we hire Patrick, this was before, of course, he got hired. Mm-hmm. Is John Thompson going to be running this program? We right. don't want that anymore. Yeah. Well, and, and, and will Patrick be going to him too often? Listen, he's he's a great resource. He's the best coach by far Georgetown ever had. Georgetown was a nice regional program that could occasionally compete nationally until John Thompson arrived and turned it into a national powerhouse. Three NCAA title games in four years with Patrick Ewing. Mm-hmm. So why would you not go and tap into that institutional knowledge when he's sitting 10 feet away? It would be crazy for Patrick not to consult him now. He can't let him run his program, and he has said there's no way that's going to happen. Right. But – He's there as a father confessor, as an advisor, as a sage. I think he's a great resource. Sure. Oh, yeah. And and I think Patrick would be crazy not to consult with him often, too. Mm -hmm. But obviously, he's not going to be in the Georgetown locker room at halftime making adjustments. Oh, that's not going to happen. I get that. Is there – and it's amazing that his presence is there because there's no lingering, like, bitterness. It's like, this is just a business. Mm -hmm. I know you probably had to fire my son. I, I, yeah, he's relayed that to pa- actually. He called Patrick mm-hmm. after, and Patrick Ewing's son was on John Thompson the third staff at Georgetown, yes. right? So it, it was weird. Uh, Patrick said when when John Thompson the third was fired, I felt like I was fired or my son was fired, and because essentially he was, mm-hmm. and he didn't know how to feel about it. He was conflicted, and and one of the first phone calls he got was from John Thompson, uh, the father, saying, "Patrick, if they're going to." fire my son his replacement should be one of us right and you're one of us i think you should get this job i think you should go for this job and without that blessing there's no way ewing would have applied and really gone for it so he needed that he needed to hear those words sure and uh so no i don't think there's bitterness there now on uh john thompson jr's part i think there would have been if he recommended Patrick Ewing and they hired an outsider, I think then he would have been better. Okay. Now, let me ask you, though, about going back to Georgetown, they gave him a six-year contract. Mm-hmm. But that's sort of, as we anyone who follows sports, we know that's sort of like a public like, leap of faith mm-hmm. or trust that contracts mean nothing in, with coaches or anybody. So – how much room do you think they're really giving him to succeed? Like how much time, like, you know, what process are they allowing to happen? I, I can't see them making a, a decision or, or, or firing him after uh, three. I, I think he gets at least four years. You, yep. You've got to give him that. And I think he'll he'll do fine. I mean, it, it's funny because initially his first schedule out of the gate was, was he made very uh, manageable for himself, <laughs> to put it politely, uh, some of the teams on that schedule. But I, I actually thought that was smart. Just try to – Remind his kids how to win, sure, and then go from there. But I think, without question, he'll get at least four years. I think everyone on that campus, the people who hired him, the people who've been there for a long time, want him to succeed. Mm-hmm. It's a great story. The amount of publicity Georgetown got. Listen, they were a forgotten place on the yes. major college basketball map, right? So all of a sudden, they hired Patrick Ewing. Had they hired another good coach, without that name recognition. They wouldn't have gotten 20% of the publicity they've gotten for hiring Patrick. They've gotten a lot out of this, and I think there'd be nothing better. What a, what a great story. Could you imagine if Ewing won a national title as a coach after winning one as a player there and going to three NCAA finals? That would be a hell of a story, and I think Georgetown wants to see that happen. That would be a hell of a story. Now, if he is successful, 
in the NBA does come calling, and that's what always happens with college success, is that what he feels his calling is? Like, is he using this or waiting for this in any way as like an I told you so moment? Like, I told you I could do this. Yeah, that's that's part of his motivation and inspiration. I don't I wouldn't call this a stepping stone job per se, though. I do think he wants to end up someday coaching in the NBA as a head coach. So I think the ideal scenario goes something like this. Within the next seven, eight years, Georgetown wins a national title Mm -hmm. and a good NBA franchise comes along and offers him a job and he's going to leave. But I don't think he wants that after three, four years. I think he does want to win a ring first at Georgetown. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think he, he sees that as a doable proposition. And then not just to take the first NBA job that comes along. Good franchise, good owner, some stability. Obviously, if the job is open, that probably means they're losing. So he's going to have to do some rebuilding. But I think the right franchise. So that's, to me, what he's looking for. He's not looking to leave right away. Mm -hmm. He wants to get them back to, hey, we can get to a Final Four. Maybe we can win it all and then take a good job in the NBA. But everything that goes with that, and you had a great uh, part of your piece where Jeff Van Gundy talks about like the distribution of labor between college and pro. Mm-hmm. Now, does do you get the sense that Patrick has the appetite for all that? Because that is a lot of, as we mentioned earlier, that is a lot of the parents and the grandparents in the living rooms, or is that kind of a means to an end of the success? And that, I mean, that can, you do hear from some coaches that do make the leap that that wears on you over time to the percentage that Coach Van Gundy pointed out when you're a head coach in the NBA, it's 90% basketball and 10% a bunch of other stuff. Right. And then at times, and some days, I'm sure when the season's over, that probably flips for a college coach. It's 90% <laughs> other stuff and 10%, I guess I hope the guys are in the weight room, you know? Right. That's, and that's all you're doing. Yeah, it's, uh, I, I don't know is the answer to your question. I don't think Patrick Ewing knows really deep down. Honestly, he'll say publicly, and he said it, that I'm ready for that. I'm ready for the nonstop grind of recruiting and dealing with AAU coaches, summer coaches, parents all that goes with it. But until you live that as a head coach in college, I don't think you know uh, how you're going to respond to that. That to me is the one real, really sort of great unknown as far as Patrick Ewing is concerned as a college coach, because a lot of it is dealing with alums, dealing with, again, the the summer AAU circuit, constant travel in the off season. You're never off. You're, you're recruiting yeah. 24-7, round the clock, year round. And, and he's a worker. I mean, I talked to Pat Riley, Jeff Van Gundy, Steve Clifford, a lot of people who work with him in the NBA. And Patrick is one of those first one in, last one out guys studying film constantly, working on scouting reports, working on game plans. So there's no question he'll put the hours in in the work. But the actual recruiting part of it is does he have the uh, he's charming enough. He has a good personality. People like him. He's engaging. But after two, three, four years of dealing with that constantly, that could wear on you. So I, I don't know how these, that, that to me is the one question about all of this. And we'll find out soon enough. Yeah. I mean, that's like when I, whenever I hear of any coach going back to college, like when Jim Harbaugh went back to college, mm-hmm. I was like, my, it was my first thought, like, how do you give up that to go back to go into every all-star game and living room that you, you need to go into? But, if if the Hoyas do get better and they do improve and they are relevant again, that also brings the kind of recruits that they want. But at the same time, a lot of those recruits are like, let's say it's the ball family 2.0 and 
and they tell you, like, listen, yeah, we'll sign up, but we're only here for one year. Mm -hmm. That's it, and we're out. So do you have – like, do you think they have a shot at being one of the schools that, like, develops players? Or is that sort of, like, the tipping point where you're at the point in overturn when you do get these one-and-done players – it's kind of hard to be measured because it's interesting. You hear Coach Calipari every year at the beginning of the year, he's like, listen, you don't understand. This team's very young, but at the same time, he's able to recruit kids that are going to be the next NBA All-Stars. Right. And they are going to, and the, the reason why they're young is because his entire team just left the year before in the NBA draft. Well, virtually. I think with Georgetown, it's more likely they're going to be a development program. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the perfect, NCAA high division one recruit right now, if you're Patrick Ewing or any major college coach is the kid who is almost good enough to be a one and done, but really is more of a two or three and done. Mm-hmm. And so you have him for two or three years and then he's ready to go to the NBA and you've developed him. And, and so I think to me, that's more the Georgetown model and more likely now Mike Krzyzewski's pulled it off. He's really turned himself into John Calabari. Yeah. And I've written about this for ESPN.com and talked to Mike about it extensively on the phone one day and he said it's reality he had no choice if he Mm -hmm. wanted to win national titles he had to do this well it's worked out fine for him so i think patrick union could do that at georgetown and still win but it's more likely to me that he's going to end up getting that program back to a point where it's not duke it's not kentucky but it's that next tier and it's not a bad place to be because you can get kids who are good enough to go to the nba but they have to spend two or three years on campus first now i couldn't agree with you more and so going back to some of the earlier thoughts about really competing, are they going to be the team that you know every couple of years we have, you have a team in the NCAA tournament who they've like got a couple good solid seniors who are probably going to do well in Europe and a couple a couple juniors that might make the NBA and that whole team is poetry in motion of what chemistry means if you keep a team together. Right. So but then that, those teams you know, tend to fade away pretty because they have to go in a cycle because they have to, those guys go and they have to rebuild and rebuild. So I guess is the best case scenario would be for Patrick to be able to do this, but then sort of get out possibly to the NBA even when they do have that big crescendo. Because to your point about not being Duke or Kentucky, they seem the best case scenario for Georgetown is that their success comes in waves, but not consistent. Right. I think if you look at a program like Wisconsin, mm-hmm. and I'm not necessarily comparing Georgetown to Wisconsin, but they had uh, Kaminsky and Decker and a couple of other guys who were NBA players, but they, they stayed for three, four years before they – and then they're going to be competitive nationally, but maybe not constantly in the Final Four, but they'll get back to that point. Mm-hmm. And I, I do think – that that is the kind of vision that anyway I have for Georgetown. I don't see them, and I think he realizes that to be Kentucky or Duke, it's going to be very difficult. It's not like the, the game has changed uh, from the point where he was there dominating with John Thompson. The Big East was a different conference, obviously. Now than you look at it now, and back then when you had U, uh, Ewing and Chris Mullen and Georgetown, Syracuse, Bayheim, and all those programs that were really attracting the top talent in the country, the Big East doesn't exist. That Big East doesn't exist anymore. So I think for Georgetown, can't can't really ride that wave like it did in the past. 
So it's not going to get to that Duke-Kentucky level, I don't think. But there's nothing wrong with being in that second tier where you can pick off a national title mm-hmm. and and still be competitive nationally, get to the NCAA tournament four out of every five years, and go to the NIT the fifth year and get back in that Final Four rotation every three, four, five years. That's realistic. I think he can do that there. I think occasionally he might he might get a, a one-and-done kid. Mm-hmm. And he's got to establish a pipeline to – Washington, D.C., which has a lot of players. Yes. That pipeline is no longer there. He's got to reestablish that. And that goes back to the amount of work he's going to put in the summer in the recruiting circuit and uh, his appetite for that. So I know you had a lot of quotes from Van Gundy. You talked to Pat Riley. Mm-hmm. What kind of advice for someone like as parallel as possible of experience would like did like a Chris Mullen give to Ewing as far as taking this on, like going back to where you started and you know take, trying to take this team from what it was. Yeah, Chris Mullen and, and also uh, Patrick spoke to Dan Marley, former NBA star who's now at Grand Canyon University, mm-hmm. and and so two NBA players he called who went back to the college game and and I think both gave him a, a very positive report on what the experience experience has been like, and I think Mullen really mirrors what Patrick is about to face, going back to a Big East school where he is the greatest player of all time in that school's history and trying to resurrect it and make it nationally relevant again. And I think Mullen is, has made steps toward accomplishing that. And, and basically Chris said, Hey, you know, you can do this. I did it. Uh, he enjoys the recruiting. He's enjoyed being the guy responsible for trying to bring St. John's back to where it was. Again, the conference isn't what it used to be and it will never be that again. So it is a bigger challenge than, than maybe it was for Lou Carnesecca and, and Roly Massimino and Bayheim and Thompson back when the Big East was really the Big East. But, uh, I know Chris Mullen told Patrick, you can do it. I, I'm in the process of doing it. I love it here. It feels like home. Georgetown is home to you. Mm-hmm. You're going to love it. Go ahead and do it. I don't know what uh, Dan Marley said to him, uh, but I think Mullen is certainly the more, uh, more of a comparable figure. And, and that was the scattering report he gave. So final thought. We all know the best case scenario, what it would be like five years from now. What do you think the most – what would you think the most realistic one is going to be? Five years from now, Patrick is still at Georgetown. I think Georgetown has made at least a Sweet 16, mm-hmm. maybe gotten to a Final Eight. To win a national title in five years I think is pushing it. I think if he's there 10 years, he can do it. And I think he'll succeed. I, I really do. I, I'm a believer in Patrick Ewing. I covered most of his career as a columnist in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, his work ethic, his intelligence, his knowledge of the game, and the fact that Hall of Fame coaches that he's learned from, John Thompson, Pat Riley, and, and even guys who might not be Hall of Famers, but Jeff Van Gundy, Steve Clifford, Tom Thibodeau are really good, solid coaches. I think that was invaluable, that education he got from those people. And... He is a a guy who is, listen, he came to this country as a junior high school kid. He didn't know the language. He didn't know the culture. He never played basketball. And he made himself an American success story. Mm-hmm. I don't see why that ends at Georgetown. I think it continues, and I think he enhances that story. Ian O'Connor, thank you for venturing into the heart of Nick's country to talk <laughs> all things Patrick Ewing. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. Remember to subscribe to Double Truck Stories podcast on the ESPN app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks again, and we'll be back soon with more Double Truck Stories podcasts.